This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, everybody. Welcome to AOA. Thanks for tuning in to us today. We've got a busy show. I'm really excited. A lot is continuing to happen around the world, especially things that impact agriculture. On today's show, we're going to hear from Dr. Ellen Wald a little bit later in the program about what to expect with crude oil prices as 2022 comes into the fore. In segment three, Elizabeth Burns Thompson is going to join me. She has been working with Navigator CO2 on a carbon capture and sequestration uh, program. She's going to give us the details on that. And finally, at the end of the show, we're going to talk with Max Armstrong about some of the news that's impacting ag across the country. But before we get into all of that, I read a fascinating opinion piece yesterday in the hill.com, and it was about a part of the world that we don't think a whole lot about necessarily in agriculture, and that's Central Asia. Uh, this article was called To America's Advantage, the Central Asian Region Stirs. It was written by Dr. John Holtzman. He's a geopolitical strategist, has previously worked at the uh, the Heritage Foundation and currently lives in Milan, 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 Italy, Milan, Italy. There we go. I'm not very cultured. And he's going to join us today to talk about how Central Asia could be affiliated with the United States going forward. Dr. Holzman, thanks for talking to us today. That's my pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. You know, Central Asia is not a region we discuss very often. They haven't been a huge buyer of ag products. They have they have been sort of slower economies. But before we get into all of that, Dr. Holzman, could you tell us just the geography? What What is Central Asia? Central Asia, I mean, those of you who've read your Kipling in school in the old days, this is where the great game was played between Tsarist Russia and the British Empire. And it amounts to Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan and Kyrgyzstan. And this is the region really between Russia and China on the great steppes in the middle of the Eurasian landmass. This huge steppes, as they're known, the region between Beijing and Moscow. And these are huge geographically, but John, they're, they're not terribly populous. Can you give us the rundown on the economy and the, the sort of the structure of these, uh, the stands over there in Central Asia? Yeah, we used to call them at Heritage the stands. That's exactly how we looked at them. And the stance, I mean, the biggest is Uzbekistan, which has about 34 million people. And so we're talking in total about a group of people. It amounts to 100 million people. It's not nothing. But spread over this giant area per mile, there are not a lot of people there. And these were former Soviet socialist republics with very closed economies, very far away from leading ports and centers of industry that are only now waking up to the world as we know it. And that's why, in a way, it's so exciting, because for the first time in history, uh, as we'd say in foreign policy, they're at the table rather than being on the menu. They tend to be groups that are fought over, and now they're beginning to work together and see that if they can fight off the outside great powers such as Russia and China, they can have a better future. And that gives America a tremendous opportunity. How do you see America fitting into this opportunity? How can we make Central Asia a, a trading partner of ours? Well, I mean, there are two basic things that they want and two basic things that we want, and they happen to go together. What the, what the stands, as we've called them, are what Central Asia is interested in is, on one hand, stopping Islamic fundamentalism. And of course, after our precipitate withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, I was against staying, but the way it was done was, of course, terribly botched. But the reality is that the United States needs allies in the region that are going to keep an eye on Islamic fundamentalism. And that is an area we share interests in. And then the other area is that they're very worried about either being strategically under the thumb of Russia, as they've been in the past, or economically under the thumb of China through the Belt and Road Initiative. They want to be strategically independent. We, on the other hand, don't want anybody dominating this huge region in the middle of Eurasia, be they our enemies, China or Russia. So all our interests line up together. And the way to play this is to very quickly do two basic things. One, you do away with the Jackson-Vanik Amendment. This was an amendment from the Cold War in the 1970s, which was rightly set up at the time to punish the Soviet Union for not allowing Jewish immigration. That is now so far in the past that we've dropped it with Russia, but nonsensically haven't done it with these countries, which have very good ties to Israel and allow for immigration. So that needs to be done immediately. And then we need to offer them permanent 
trade status, which we, again, we do with our enemies such as China and Russia, because if we do that, then we can very quickly go into the region and do very well indeed, because what they want, what we want, which is a diversity of trading partners, and we want this region opened up to us. So it's a win-win. It is. But John, as I think about some of the announcements China has made over the past several years with regard to their Belt and Road Initiative, Central Asia's kind of right in the path of that thing. Is Are, are they going to be able to remain economically independent as China moves forward? That's the huge question, Mike. That's that's exactly right, because Xi Jinping in China has to break out from what we call the first island chain trap. He's got to get overland to do trade not dominated by America. If you look at a map from Japan all the way down to the Strait of Malacca, all the countries off the coast of China are American allies, be it China, be it Japan, be it Taiwan, be it the Philippines, be it India. So that's not a way out. So one of the ways to break out is to do the old Marco Polo route, go overland into Central Asia. And so China is spending a lot of time on the Belt and Road Initiative, offering cheap loans for infrastructure to this part of the world. But they're very worried about the terms of the loans, which tend toward the mafioso. If you don't pay them back, China will take your port, as they did in Sri Lanka. If you don't pay them back, China will take your airport, as they did in Uganda. Nobody wants terms like that, whereas American terms of trade tend to be far less onerous. So we have an opening in that we're willing to work with you rather than take what you own if you don't pay us back immediately. And that gives us an advantage if we bother to play it right. So when we think about economic growth opportunities in this region, what sort of manufacturing or agriculture or uh, other economic activity could happen in Central Asia as they awaken? Well, a lot. And I mean, the key to the region is, the, is Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, which functions sort of like France and Germany do in the European Union. They're the big two who really set set the tone. And in terms of exports, most of the things that these folks export are raw materials. Uzbek, Uzbekistan cotton is some of the best in the world, for instance. Both Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan uh, export copper um, and Kazakhstan exports oil. But what they want imported are either machine tool parts, but also in the case of Kazakhstan, foodstuffs make up seven or eight percent, which can only go up. So there is an open door and an opportunity here for agricultural products to fill that void because it's not an area they've either imported or exported a lot. So to expose them to the genius of the American farmer, to the diversity that we can provide would be a welcome sense. And they have wonderful raw materials and are looking for partners other than Russia and China. Frankly, this is a case, a positive case of us needing to walk through the door. Let's say we walk through this door, we start to do everything right, John. In your mind, how long will it take before they become uh, sizable traders on the international uh, uh, scene? Well, given, again, these resources that they have that and raw materials, of course, coming out of the COVID era are going to be more and more important. I think that it can be ramped up very fast. For one thing, they're all working together for the first time in memory that, that this they've always been pitted against each other. And Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan just signed a formal alliance agreement. The five leaders of the governments meet and they're working on interconnectivity. And so there's a big opportunity here. Lots of things to keep an eye on. Dr. Holzman, thanks for bringing this to our attention. We'll check in with you as other geopolitical events develop around the world. Look forward to it, Mike. And folks, stick with us when AOA returns. We're going to talk crude oil with Dr. Ellen Wald, so stick around. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Considering an online pharmacy? Explore BeSafeRx to find useful information and resources to help you purchase medicines safely online. A safe online pharmacy requires a doctor's prescription, has an address in the United States, has a licensed pharmacist, and is licensed by a state pharmacy board. It's best to stay away from online pharmacies that don't meet these criteria. 
Discover more helpful tips and resources at BeSafeRx. Go to FDA.gov slash BeSafeRx. Today, more than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's. And more than 11 million family members and friends serve as their caregivers. While researchers are working tirelessly to end Alzheimer's and all other dementia, the number of people living with Alzheimer's is expected to more than double by 2050. The toll of the disease is monumental, and its devastation affects family, friends, and especially caregivers. No one should face Alzheimer's and dementia by themselves. If you or someone you know is struggling to provide care to a loved one, please share this message. You are not alone. Free help and resources are available 24-7. To talk with an expert and obtain disease-related information, care and support services, call 800-272-3900 or visit the Alzheimer's Association website at alz.org. You are not alone. I'll take Dig a Little, Learn a Lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america this is mike pearson and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world keeping farmers and ranchers informed aoa now back to mike pearson Welcome back, folks, to AOA. We are going to be talking in this next segment about crude oil, and I'm really excited about our guest, Dr. Ellen Wald. She's a researcher, crude oil analyst, and literally wrote the book on Saudi Aramco, the massive Saudi oil conglomerate. She's very plugged into what's happening in crude oil. Dr. Wald, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to ask you, you recently published a piece, you were looking at oil price drivers here in 2022. You found several factors that could push crude oil higher and six that could help put some pressure on prices for folks as they look out to this new year. As you think about those catalysts that could push prices higher, what's number one in your mind? Hey there, Dr. Wald, I think we might have lost you. Can you tell us again what you think uh, number one might be in terms of factors that could push prices higher? All right, folks, I think we might be having a little bit of technical troubles. Our production team is hard at work up there in Fargo getting uh, Dr. Wald squared away. As soon as we get that done, we will get her back on. But I wanted to just highlight some of the points that Dr. Wald made in her piece. And Ellen, when you come on, just, just jump right in. Number one, she was talking about Russian belligerence. This is a huge issue looking out over the next couple years with Russia and the Ukraine, those tensions rising. It's, it's hugely important that we see what plays out in here. Dr. Wald, we get you back on yet? All right, we're going to keep working, folks. The other issue that was uh, kind of top of mind, and if we can get Dr. Wald back on, we'll, we'll pick her brain in a little more detail, and that was Saudi instability. What's happening there in Saudi Arabia? Um, we are going to, this is where we're really excited to talk to Dr. Walt because Saudi Arabia, of course, is huge. She notes it's the king of Saudi Arabia, King Salman, is going to turn 86 here in 2022. And there could be a leadership change um, in the on the horizon. There's a lot of other stuff going on. I'm going to take a pause for a minute. We're going to try to get Dr. Wald back on the line. 
while we do that, I want to talk about some of the other news events that are moving. I don't want to steal Dr. Walt's thunder so we can get her back on. Taking a look at what's happening around the country today, one of the big concerns, folks, it's weather. We are having some weather events moving in. We talked yesterday with Ed Valley of Empire Weather, and he highlighted the fact this storm system is supposed to move across the central U.S. Friday and Saturday. Um, it is going to be a doozy, it looks like, for a lot of folks. We're trying to get those... Um, uh, we're trying to get those forecast models to line up, and it looks like they're starting to take shape. Basically, a stretch from north central Kansas all the way to Chicago, and then even touching a little bit of Michigan. Could be seeing some heavy snowfall onto Saturday, and those cold temps are going to be a problem as uh, we get into the northern Great Plains. The other news we've got coming out on the cattle side, we've got cash trade this week pushing 140. Live trade so far, mainly between 138 and 140 in Nebraska. That was on Tuesday. We've been seeing these bids stay strong. There's a lot of optimism there on the cattle front. Just heard from the producer, we are working to get Dr. Wald lined up, so stick around. She'll be with us here in just a second. Second, but there's some other concern coming out of China. Uh, there was a conference yesterday in Beijing, and the ministers of the economy all got together and they, they shared their thoughts about what's happening in China. And one of the major concerns was with inflation and production capacity. We have seen massive export gains in China. Of course, we know this. Looking at the, the ships backed up off the West Coast, that's all stuff we've ordered from China making its way over. Chinese exports have been phenomenal. And we are going to, they, I should say, are concerned that they're not going to be able to keep that pace as they work into this new year. They're very confident, excuse me, they're very confident they're going to be able to hold things in place and keep foreign trade running within a reasonable range. And importantly, I think for agricultural producers, they expect Chinese imports to grow more than 20% in 2021 to a total of $6 trillion. And that number might slow down here over the next, uh, the next year, they might not be able to maintain that pace of trade. We've also got other news coming out of China. There are some major concerns operating in the background that could impact our trade with China as we look out to this next year. A couple of them are equity market related. We've been hearing for the past several months, several Chinese companies have been delisting from American stock exchanges, from NASDAQ, from the NYSE. They're pulling their, their shares from those places and they're transferring them back into China. This is a huge push by Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping, and he's trying to bring that economic activity back to home. But of course, this causes fairly substantial disruptions in the financial market in China. So that is issue one. How is that all gonna play out? And of course, there's tariffs and trade. We will be discussing that on this show as we go out long term. But one of the factors that could impact impact trade over the next year is China's treatment of the Uyghur population. Earlier this month, President Biden signed legislation that banned goods from China's Xinjiang region from coming into the U.S. unless companies can prove that they're not being made with forced labor. That's the, uh, the major concern in that region. These Uyghur Muslims are uh, allegedly being forced into labor for Chinese company. And the United States has said, we don't want anything from that region unless you can prove it. Well, this is pretty offensive to the Chinese government, and it's expected that there will be some sort of retaliation towards the United States as this comes to fruition. The other thought that Chinese people have in their minds as they look out to 2022 is the Olympics. Now, that's happening in Beijing in February, the Winter Olympics this next year. And next week, oh, we're going to have a guest on to discuss the fertilizer market, Chris Short with CHS Hedging. And Chris has been trading fertilizer for a long time, and he looked back at the last time. China hosted the Olympics in Beijing, and that was 2008. And he's got some interesting thoughts as we look ahead to how China could handle the Olympics. And now it does sound like we've got Dr. Wald back on the line. Ellen, are you with us? Yes, hi. Hey, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for being patient. Let's talk a little bit about your report. We talked about Russian belligerence. I want to pick your brain on Saudi instability. Do you think we're going to see some transitions here in that government this next year? Well, I think there's always the potential for this because of the age of the current king of Saudi Arabia and the way that the Saudi um, 
the Saudi monarchy works. And so uh, if there is any kind of change at the top, uh, for example, if the king does die uh, and then there'll be a push for his son to take over, there'll be some very uh, upset people in Saudi Arabia and any kind of instability there will undoubtedly trickle down to the oil situation and will raise questions about Saudi Arabia's oil policy and uh, whether or not they're going to continue on the road that they've been going on, which is this um, OPEC plus stability agreement with Russia. And so uh, there's, there's always a possibility that that could call into question uh, the, the OPEC uh, stability agreement. So now you mentioned OPEC plus as a reason we might see prices come down this next year. What has changed with the way OPEC handles the, either their reporting or their pumping? Well, exactly. So OPEC has OPEC really used to meet just twice a year, and they would set oil policy for about six months at a time, and that provided the market with a fairly uh, good sense of where things were going to be headed for the next six months. But recently, they've switched to basically a monthly meeting schedule. So basically, every single month at the beginning of the month, they meet and they decide whether or not they want to go ahead with their plans, which as of now are to increase production by 400,000 barrels a day per month, which is a pretty moderate increase, but it's not insignificant when you look at it over the long term. But because every month it's a will they or won't they situation, it introduces this measure of volatility into the market uh, with every month wondering, are they actually going to follow through with this or won't they? And some months we've really seen a high degree of volatility in prices around uh, the, the beginning of the month. Interesting. So that trustworthiness factor of OPEC, whether they're going to stick to their cuts, is key. Uh, Dr. Wald, before we let you go, U.S. production in 2022, do you see it expanding? Yeah, this is this is the big question, and I think one of the most important factors for 2022. And um, we've seen some growth in production, but the question is, will we hit levels that we saw in 2019? And I really think that we're, we're not going to touch that. And uh, if, if we get into a situation where, yes, production is increasing, but really in a very incremental way, and we have some outage elsewhere in the world, that could really lead to a sharp spike in crude oil prices. And I think that's something that uh, we have to keep in mind. Absolutely. Certainly something to keep an eye on. Dr. Wald, as we go forward, hopefully we can get you back on again to pick your brain on this crude market in a little more detail. Great. And folks, stick around. When AOA returns, we will look at another factor that is carbon related, and that's carbon capture and storage. So stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at the Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash fieldposts. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rawl. U.S. export sales during the week that ended December 23rd were higher for corn, but fell lower for the rest of the crop markets compared to the prior week. Corn sales increased 22% on the week and reached 1.246 million tons for 2021-2022 sales, which exceeded the high end of trade expectations. Bean sales were 64% below the 10-week average and fell to a marketing year low. Wheat sales were about half 
of their 10-week average sales volume. Top destinations were Japan for corn, China for beans, and Taiwan for wheat. On the Board of Trade this morning, March corn trading four and a half cent lower at 601 and a fraction of a cent. The May contract down four and three quarters at 602. For soybeans, the March contract down 11 and a half cent at 1357 and a fraction. November down three and three quarters at 1276. For wheat, Chicago wheat March down four and a fraction at 783 and a half cent. Kansas City wheat March down two and three quarters at 821 and three quarters. Minneapolis spring wheat March down four and a half cent at 1004 and a half cent. The May contract down a nickel at 995 and three quarters. In cash cattle country, it's slow to start this morning, but packer inquiry should improve over the next several hours. Asking prices are around $140 plus in the south and $224 in the north. Having said all of that, it looks like business is essentially done in the north, although a little cleanup trade is not out of the question today. Beef cutouts are expected to be higher with light to moderate box movement. For live cattle on the Board of Trade, the February contract down 37 at 140.35, April down 35 at 140. For feeder cattle, the January contract trading 20 cents higher at 166.07, March up 12 at 168.17. For lean hogs, the February contract down 37 at 83.45, April down 20 at 88.25. You're listening to AOA, I'm Kirsten Rall. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA. One of the things that is happening is a focus on carbon sequestration, carbon capture and sequestration, CCS, they call it. There are a number of firms out there looking to find ways to capture carbon coming off manufacturing plants, transport it to a place, and they can stick it in the ground. Joining me today is Elizabeth Burns Thompson. She is the vice president of government and public affairs at Navigator CO2, a firm looking to do exactly this. Elizabeth, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Happy to be here. Before we get too far into the science of carbon capture and sequestration, tell us a little bit about Navigator CO2. Sure. Yeah. So, so Navigator itself um, is a has a long track record of experience in kind of the midstream space, and by midstream, I mean you know construction of of pipeline type infrastructure. Uh, I myself am new to the Navigator team. Um, was given the opportunity to kind of jump into the the carbon space. Um, especially the integration to what this project means to some of the value-added ag industries that we've got. So um, I, I'm learning a little bit more about construction of pipelines, but definitely keeping that all through the lens of what this means to, to those of us here in the Cordon Soybean Belt. Tell us about the Heartland Greenway, the Navigator CO2 project that, that you guys are working on right now. Absolutely. So the Heartland Greenway is a, as you mentioned before, a carbon capture and storage or CCS project. Um, in total, it's about 1,300 miles of, of proposed new pipeline infrastructure. Uh, what that's looking to do uh, is to capture CO2 from about 20 different receipt points. Um, those receipt points falling into those two major buckets of, of ethanol producers um, and fertilizer processors across uh, about five states. So Illinois, Iowa, uh, Minnesota, South Dakota, and Nebraska. What CCS does is, is at each of these facilities, we actually in, install capture equipment. Um, that capture equipment does kind of exactly what it's named to do. 
captures that CO2 that's otherwise just being emitted as part of these processes. Uh, that CO2 is then dehydrated, so it takes as much of, of the, the water out of it as possible, compressed, uh, so it changes from a gas into a liquid, and then it maintains, excuse me, maintains that liquid status as it moves through that network of, of pipeline infrastructure, ultimately to uh, a wellhead or network of wellhead sites um, in South Central Illinois. Uh, specifically, the area we're looking at is in kind of Christian County, um, somewhat near the Decatur area, um, where we would be looking to build out those well sites. Those are, are drilled about a, approximately a mile to a mile and a half underground into a, a porous formation that's found in that area uh, where it's injected um, and, and permanently stored or sequestered over time. Is it stored, uh, Elizabeth, as a liquid or does it convert back to gas form once it's out of the pipe? So if you think back to, you know, when we learned about those three different states of matter in science class, you know, uh, gas, liquid, and solid, we actually interact with, with all of them as part of this process. So what starts as a gas, um, you know, we transform into a liquid, and then um, it is injected in its liquid form uh, it, into a kind of a, a briny water in with this porous formation, I should say. Um, and then over time, what that carbon does is begin to mineralize and actually change into a solid in that particular region, you know, becoming part of the rock. Interesting. So then that carbon is kept out of the atmosphere completely and it's just left underground where as long as we don't touch it again, it stays there. Is that how it works? Pretty much. Heartland Greenway is proposing to connect all of these different facilities, move it to a single pipeline and then deposit it. Elizabeth, there are lots of concerns about eminent domain and, you know, rights of way. Have you folks uh, been exploring the challenges it might take to get a pipeline of 1,300 miles in the ground? A robust project of this size and scale uh, necessarily coincides with a very robust timeline as well. So uh, we are not looking to, to kick off any type of construction until at least 2024. Um, that gives us enough time to navigate the, the different layers of, of permitting that are associated with this. So there are a number of permits that are required at the federal level through Army Corps, Fish and Wildlife, um, you know, each of the wellhead sites is permitted through the US EPA. Um, in addition to each state within that footprint has its own um, unique permitting uh, structure and process that we're navigating. We are just kicking many of those off in some of these states. So uh, I think you know, at the time of this airing, we'll, we'll have done about half of our local landowner informational meetings in the state of Iowa. Other states will start off in, in Illinois, uh, jump up into Minnesota, do a couple in South Dakota, and, and end at the end of January um, over in Nebraska. But again, having the opportunity to start having those conversations uh, with landowners, educate them, and, and share the details about what's being proposed, how it works, um, why we think it makes sense, and then you know, working with them a collaborative you know, station to, to figure out what ultimately makes the most sense for landowners in terms of placement of, of ultimate infrastructure. Well, I was just gonna say, I mean, that sounds like a lot of work, Elizabeth. Why don't these ethanol plants and fertilizer companies just put a pipeline right under their facility and pump it into the ground where they're at? That's a great question. So, um, you know, we are blessed with, with a lot of things, uh, not only here in the state of Iowa, but throughout the corn and soybean belt. Um, unfortunately, having that, that requisite geology or geological profile is, is not found in many of the areas of where, where the ethanol industry has developed. So uh, these unique little pockets of geology um, are only found in, in certain areas. So South Central Illinois is a, is a great spot. There, you do find it in some other, other areas. So up in far kind of northern North Dakota, you get into parts of western Nebraska, you can find some of them as well. Um, we do believe that the, the, the area, the formation that we are targeting, um, the Mount Simon, is, is really ripe and, and one of the most well understood areas of this geology, in large part because it's, it's already home to an operating uh, CCS project in the agriculture space and, and has been for the better part of a decade. So ADM has had a, uh, an operating CCS uh, project at their Decatur ethanol plant um, for I believe the better part of seven or eight years. And so we have a lot of learning um, and data from that particular project to layer on top of um, what's been part of our processes as well. So we really think that that this is kind of a collision of a lot of different good factors. That makes sense. And Elizabeth, we've talked about the what, pulling carbon off these plants, sticking it in the ground. We've talked about the how, running it in pipelines and getting it to where it needs to be. I want to talk about the why. How does CCS 
pencil. Uh, why would we do this? Obviously, it's good for the environment, but where's the economic incentive to do a project like this? Absolutely. Um, and I'd say there's a number of different facets. So our economic model specifically, so I don't want to speak for other companies, but how Navigator is, is doing our offering with industry is that we are, uh, my analogy is, is, you know, we are the bus system, right, to provide a transportation service for that carbon. The riders on that bus being, you know, those tons of CO2 um, and, and the entity buying the ticket for that being that ethanol plant or that fertilizer facility. So what that allows um, with us being kind of the means of transport is that those those local plants, you know, that, that ethanol plant in your local community gets to take full advantage of all of the incentives that are associated with decarbonization. Um, some of those being policy driven, some of those being market driven. So for example, there is a, a robust uh, federal tax credit uh, that allows on a, on a per tonnage basis of the CO2 or carbon that's ultimately permanently stored or sequestered. Additionally, when you look at um, the, the markets associated with these end products, a lot of the ethanol is, is looking at being, you know, scored or evaluated kind of on carbon intensity type valuations, especially in low carbon fuel standard marketplaces like along the West Coast and, and some of which is being explored even through here throughout the heartland. Um, the, the value that those plants can get on a per gallon basis is significantly more when that carbon score is reduced. So again, added premium for that end product for your local plant. Um, the other thing that I'd say is, is the plants also have the optionality to begin to participate in some of those voluntary carbon markets, some of the similar markets that many farmers that are listening to this program might be beginning to, to explore themselves through, through offset credits and things that they're associated with practices on your farm. So the facilities themselves have the optionality to figure out what type of marketplace and how best to continue to market those products. We are truly just here to provide a service so that they can continue to or they can take advantage of, of all of those incentives from the full spectrum. That makes sense. Now, as you look out, obviously, we've got an administration in Washington, D.C. who wants to make climate change a priority. You're expecting these sort of subsidies and this push towards CCS to remain for the next several years, it sounds like. I, I am a firm believer and I think many would agree that, you know, tax policy is meant to incentivize changes. Um, I'm not here to say that, that you know, a tax policy would be in place forever, uh, but we do foresee that, that um, you know, carbon capture and storage is, is kind of the way of the future and will really be what cha changes how we go about producing these particular products. So CCS will likely become just a part of how we produce ethanol and how we produce fertilizer and this type of tax incentive or tax policy is going to be what helps get these facilities, you know, charged and, and across that finish line to get that type of infrastructure in place. Um, and it will become normal kind of process of, of how we produce these. So um, this does have a, a sunset date on it. Uh, but, you know, as we look to how industries continue to evolve, you know, there's a lot of things that we've added to the processes of, of production of ethanol or production of fertilizer or production of anything um, that's, that's grown and become a, you know, more complex or more refined over time. We see this as, as being part of that as well. The way that we value products too, carbon intensity has necessarily become more important as part of that process. And it's not just the end product valuation. I do want to make mention, you know, there's those voluntary carbon markets. Um, many that farmers are beginning to explore are associated, you know, with the the production practices on your farm so that you're then having, you know, a lower CI or lower carbon intensity of that feedstock or that corn or soybeans that's then going into these plants. If you couple the lower carbon intensity or the valuations of lower CI corn, along with reduce, reducing the, the emissions or the scoring of the emissions associated with these facilities, that's how we reach carbon neutral or potentially carbon negative ethanol or, or fertilizer. Wow, that is pretty incredible to think of. Elizabeth Burns Thompson, Vice President with Navigator CO2. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Absolutely. Happy to do so, Mike. Don't go away. Max Armstrong up next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Hey, Dad. Your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad. Your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey. Why don't you take a minute? 
When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer editors are posting unique original content to their website at DTNPF.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crop, cattle, equipment, technology, and more. They are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business with than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Hey, wouldn't it be great if life came with a remote control? You know, you could hit pause when you needed to, or hit rewind, like that time you knocked down that wasp's nest. Uh Uh-oh. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes, you can stop pre-diabetes before it leads to type 2 diabetes. To learn your risk, take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Oh, nice engine. Supercharged? Yep. High porosity and aggregates? Yep. Porous medium for gas exchange? Uh Uh-huh. Microbial catalytic potential and repository for carbon and nitrogen? Check, check, and check. Oh, man, that is good under the hood. And to think I used to be impressed with hammies. So... When was the last time you looked under the hood at your farm's production engine? At your soil? Is it as healthy and productive as it can be? Stop by your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out and unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by NRCS and this radio station. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. 
Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks, to AOA. Mike Pearson here. And before we log off for the day, I wanted to take a minute to get caught up on some of the stories that have been floating around in the world of agriculture. And one of the ways to do that is to check in with farm broadcasters. Uh, one of my favorite farm broadcasters, legendary Max Armstrong, joins me today, host of This Week in Agribusiness. Max, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing well, sir. I know what you're doing, the same thing Mr. Adams used to do all the time, but it's a slow day. You know, call him a farm broadcaster. You know, we, we farm <laughs> broadcasters interview anybody with a heartbeat when it gets slow. <laughs> <laughs> we do indeed. But, Max, there's also lots of stuff happening. I wanted to, to start first. I know you've got connections across the country. We have had a batch of severe weather this December. Kansas wildfires, we saw that throw a, a lot of operations into turmoil. Uh, what have you been hearing from that area in Kansas that had those fires here, gosh, almost two weeks ago now? Yeah, you know, it's it's terrible. I guess I'm always encouraged, and I know the people who live there have to take some some encouragement, too, from the helping hands that come forward. And this is, this is the thing that amazes me every time, and it shouldn't after watching this all of these years, but every time there's a fire in northern Oklahoma or southern Kansas or, in this case, farther north, you know, or there's another natural disaster, such as what happened around Mayfield, Kentucky. You know, farmers and ranchers load up the trucks, and, you know, it becomes a, a very, oh, instructional thing, I think, in some of the families. I know, for example, a rancher in southern Missouri who uh, had his son accompany him uh, a couple of years ago to haul fencing, and they hauled uh, posts, and they hauled hay out to help some of their colleagues in the Kansas or Oklahoma, I don't recall which disaster it was at the time, but they came back and, and said, you know, it was the most wonderful experience for them to be able to participate in something like that with others, with others uh, to, to help, you know, farmers and ranchers who are in a dire strait like that. So I guess that's the thing I take heart from every time we have a disaster of this nature. And of course, the state farm bureaus all have educational foundations that are set up that often support ag in the classroom, but they're, they're well positioned for something like this. And, and people who aren't farmers pour a lot of money in at times like this uh, to something of that nature to, to really respond. <laughs> They really do. I mean, I, I think you, you touched on it, Max. Anytime we hear a disaster, you, you see on social media, you hear at the coffee shop, farmers putting together convoys of assistance to head to wherever the challenge was, because I think folks in agriculture know that, you know, there but for the grace of God, go I. We could all be hit by fires and tornadoes and, and so forth. So there's that, that sense of camaraderie that you get with farmers. And that leads me to my second issue, Max. Earlier this week, there was an interview with the CEO of Chipotle, and he was talking about the reduction in the number of farmers. I was somewhat surprised to hear this coming from Chipotle. I, I know you talked about the the interview. What did you think from Brian Nichols' conversation there? Well, I guess I found it very interesting, the kinds of things that he supports and the causes that he supports. And, and I, I did find it interesting that he's showing a lot of interest in agriculture. But Chipotle has at times in the past, and it hasn't always been exactly what mainstream agriculture in, in America would embrace themselves. And I think one thing that comes to mind here from this, Mike, is the fact that here's another voice to, to remind me of who all is going to be playing in the game the next time a farm bill is written. There are a lot of people now. It's, you know, it used to be certainly the purview of farm organizations, mostly conservation groups, certainly. But the last couple of times, as we've noticed, and probably even more so with the writing of the next farm bill, there are going to be a lot of other people coming to the table here uh, with, uh, with a variety of views. I mean, you know, you keep hearing people talk about the fact they don't even want it to be a, quote, farm bill anymore. But, you know, he, he talked about supporting small farms. He, he specifically targeted his support of small farms and wants to encourage small farms and younger farmers. Uh, there was no mention at all of supporting medium-sized or large farms. 
No, no, that's true, which which isn't terribly surprising, I think, given Chipotle's marketing push over the past several years. But Max, he also mentioned something that I know you've talked about, and that's the, the loss of farm ground we're seeing across the country. You know, yeah. he cites 20 million acres of farm ground have been lost. We talked earlier this week with Ty Higgins from the Ohio Farm Bureau, and Ohio is having that conversation now about solar farms. Max, this is a growing issue. You're plugged into a lot of farmers. Have you heard these solar farms? Farms popping up around the country. Yeah, you know they've been been popping up obviously for years, but they tended to be in isolated areas and on some instances less productive soils. Now you have them being cited. Well, for example, within 50 miles, 60 miles of Chicago, on some of the most productive soils on the planet. And you know the people who own that have every right to do what they want to with their land. I mean, I'm a huge, huge supporter of private property rights. It almost makes me sick, though, to see highly productive farm ground covered with glass panels taken out of production. Uh, You know, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like the right thing to do. I don't have a dog in the fight, but as a taxpayer and as a grandfather, I just think it's the wrong thing. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting the way these these massive projects can can sometimes divide communities because they are coming with a lot of economic incentive, Max. You know, you talk about some of the figures you've heard for cash rents on these solar farms. They're more than any farmer could reasonably expect to pay to to keep that ground in production ag in the short term. And you gotta understand, you know, when you're looking at generations of uncertainty ahead of you, you know, you're like, oh man, you know, what's gonna happen here? And it's a challenge to produce crops. And, uh, and it, I, I can totally understand uh, a younger farmer looking at that and saying, yeah, you know, I'm going to look at this pretty close. Uh, also, the cities want to, want to bring in development uh, that are encouraging this around. And I, I get that, too. A friend of mine, well, a cousin of mine is a mayor of a small town in Indiana, and he says we need to be able to bring in jobs. We need economic development. That's true. Those are always the trade-offs there in rural America. Max Armstrong, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Hey, nice to visit some of you. Happy New Year to all your great listeners. Hey, thanks so much, Max. Happy New Year to you. Good luck to Purdue later today in the uh, the bowl game. And folks, tune in tomorrow to AOA. We're going to be talking to Robert White from the RFA. And Corey Melby will bring us up to speed on what's happening in Brazil. Thanks for listening to AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. The landscape of media has changed, and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm Radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. As a truck driver, I've learned how important road safety is. I know that large trucks need more time and room to stop. That's why I always hang back and follow other vehicles at a safe distance. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, try to remember to always give trucks extra space when you merge in front of them. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov.